Good evening. I'm Corey Morgan, and this is The Pipeline. This is the Western Standards weekly panel show where we'll take a few issues with a number of our staff members and dissect and discuss them and tell you what we think about them and maybe try to imply what we think you should think about them. But it's up to you. You come to your conclusions. We've got lots to talk about today. I'm going to start, though, actually with something else, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, some of our regular members with the Western Standard might have noticed there's some problems getting into the website. We've migrated to a whole new uh, platform and it will be an improvement. It's going to be really good when it's all done. Unfortunately, we ran into some hiccups and there's been some difficulties for folks logging in. So what's happened is we're giving actually free access until we fix it. So if you're already subscribers, get on in there, guys. Have a look. Sorry for the delays and I appreciate the patience. If you haven't subscribed yet, hey, here's a good chance to get a sneak peek and realize why it's so important and so worth it for you to spend $9.99 a month or $100 a year to subscribe and get back there and see all those columns and stories without that nasty paywall in the way. So kind of we're going to turn this into a treat for you. And again, thank you guys for the patience. We'll get it all ironed out. Uh, always those tech things, you know, they can be maddening. Uh, the other way we pay our bills, I guess, you know, I should get to that and I'll get that out of the way, is our sponsors, of course, and it's important. I shouldn't say it's getting it out of the way. I like talking about these guys. The Canadian Shooting Sports Association. They've been a fantastic sponsor for us, and they've been a fantastic advocate for anybody who owns firearms. If you own them, collect them. Whether you want to do target shooting, hunting, whatever you want, it's your business. But we've got a government that doesn't want you to have the ability to do those things. They think it's their business, and you need to push back. The Canadian Shooting Sports Association stands up for you. They advocate for you, but you've got to be a member. They can't help you unless you help them. So check them out. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Their website's CSSA-CILA. Org, or just Google them, take out a membership. It's a worthwhile investment in your own rights. Okay, we got a bit of a different panel shakeup today, but with some standard names you would have seen in your stories and uh, articles uh, through the, the months and even now getting past a year and some with Jonathan here. Uh, so I'll start on the end there. Uh, we got our reporter, Jonathan Bradley. Welcome to the show today. Thank you, Corey. It's been a while since I've been on here. Yeah, it's been a bit. So you're overdue. And we got it totally, yeah, messed up. Eventually, I'm going to get back in my chair over in the end. It's been a while now. And uh, we've got Sean Polzer here in the middle. Thank you very much. Filling in for, well, we got Dave, Nigel, Derek, all in different forms of uh, inability to come in right now. So they're all getting better. We'll have a normal lineup coming again. But it's fine. You know, people don't see the same faces all the time. I know they get tired of mine. I've been the consistent one all the way through here. But uh, glad you guys could pretty it up a little on the end there. All right, enough of that. Well, let's start. I mean, again, the top story of the week, and it's probably going to be the top story of the year, is the, the Israel-Gaza conflict. And, and, and I mean, it's, it's horrific. It's just in its early stages, unfortunately, I hate to say it. Uh, we're seeing a lot of awful imagery. And uh, what I want to talk about, though, is also, the, I guess, the, the miscommunication, the accuracy in reporting. Uh, Jonathan, as a reporter watching this, you know, we will get your views on... on uh, what you're seeing in the reporting and coverage of, of this event as it's coming out. Well, one thing that I've noticed in particular is how many people are justifying Hamas's actions as acceptable. Like I did a story, I think it was last Thursday, about the York University student unions coming together and putting out a statement saying that they Hamas's terrorism is justified and that they said that Hamas's terrorist attack is all about colonialism. And what I found particularly funny about these comments was the the president of the graduate students union who signed on to the statement is non-binary i'm not too sure if she if they know what happens to non-binary people in palestine but i mean it was you know i had a chuckle about that 
But even some public figures like uh, VQP Ontario president has spoken out in support of Palestine and justified Hamas's actions. So it is. it has been a bit troubling, to say the least. Yeah, well, getting on to the, the, the media and Sean, like, I, I, we see some of the race. I mean, we could be guilty of it, too. I mean, it's a bit of the digital world, too. Everybody wants to be on the story first. They want to be the ones who hit that story out there. They might not have a reporter on the ground over there, so they're relying on Twitter and X as much as anybody or, or following accounts or press releases. But, I mean, we've seen some recent, really, I, I think, jumping the gun on some some big uh, incidents that have happened, and uh, you know, it causes damage when that happens. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, they say that uh, truth is the first casualty of war. And uh, we had an example of that yesterday with the um, so-called hospital bombing, which uh, in itself <clears throat> is an awful, horrible thing. You know, 500 people getting killed in a hospital where they're supposed to be safe. And uh, exactly like you said, uh, Corey, so it uh, flashed out on Twitter and there's a lot of pressure to get out there with the story and be first with it, uh, maybe before all the facts are even known. You know, and then it uh, come out uh, maybe half an hour later that, you know, chances are this, this could have been a friendly fire incident. And, you know, the, and then there again, those videos were put out on Twitter, released by the IDF. I would imagine that they would have had to have been vetted on the other end before they would take such a step to actually do that and maybe kind of cross-verify it. But, uh, yeah, the you know, uh, the narrative kind of gets uh, a little hazy in the fog of war, as they, as they say. Yeah, well, the media world should know better, I would think. Too. Well, who knows? We necessarily know better. But I mean, you know, an IDF for people unfamiliar with is the Israel Defense Forces. And I mean, I, I wouldn't put it beyond the IDF to put out BS. It's a war. They're, they're going to do propaganda on their end as well. I mean, what I found kind of striking when this happened, though, and when, when it was breaking out was uh, Hamas. I mean, that was they said it's the Hamas Health Authority. Well, yeah, or the Palestinian Gaza Health Authority. Yeah, that's Hamas. The Hamas governs that area. Uh, put it out, and, and they had numbers that were just, wow, this is, it happened half an hour ago, and you know, there's 562 people dead, and it was this and this. I mean, there are already some alarm bells. I mean, these guys can barely count, you know, <laughs> what's going on, on on a street. How do they have these precise numbers? We, meanwhile, Israel and IDF were saying, well, we aren't going to respond to this. We've got to research and check into some things first because we're not quite sure what happened. I, I, it just gives me more of a sense of trust with the one who's willing to admit we don't know what happened yet than the ones who came up with such a... Yeah, that's true. But, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> our news editor, Dave Naylor, called us over, you know, to around his desk and, and asked, you know, uh, should we be posting, you know, re reposting these videos that have been coming up on Twitter? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a war correspondent. I've never covered war, you know, but I've been to a couple of riots, Stanley Cup riots here yeah. in this country. And when you saw the pictures of uh, all the bodies laying around, like my first thought was like, oh my God, like, because I was thinking that too, you know, how can you come up with 500? But I mean, there, there was definitely, you know, dozens, hundreds of, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, casualties. I don't oh, even know. There's no doubt it was tragic no matter who did it. I don't even know if they were actually laying down there on the ground, you know, maybe it could have been states, but, well. uh, <laughs> you know, it, it didn't kind of seem like that, you know. You have to think that there, there definitely was an incident and it was definitely tragic in any event, whoever was responsible for it. Yeah. But, you know, and it's kind of like you make the point too, you know, Hamas is the civic government there. So they would be running the health authority and they would be running the hospital. And it seems a little disingenuous that, you know, that they would want to fire on their own people. Right. So, you know, now they're saying it was some kind of a splinter group. 
Well, and the, the report also is that it, it sounds like maybe they were launching a, a missile that was intended to go to Israel and, and hit innocent people there instead, but it, right. it broke up and, and, and then crashed on the hospital accidentally. So you get into this moral equivalent <laughs> argument, you know, <laughs> is it better or worse to kill other people or, you know? Yeah, and uh, but I mean, we're, we're, we're in this age of instant news, you know, and Jonathan, you're kind of younger among us and you're more used to it, like it's the age of the iPhone. Um, as you mentioned, you know, we used to see things in the past where perhaps there were staging of incidents and things going on, but I don't think they could get away with that now yes. because there'd be a hundred other people who would have other pictures they've been taking with their camera saying quite to the contrary and showing the act. So I, I suspect, unfortunately, those, those images of bodies were, were real and it's awful, no matter who did it. Yes. Uh, but I mean, how do you respond? I mean, well, what would Dave say, though, if you wrote a story just based on a few uh, Twitter uh, videos and, and things you shot <laughs> and, and you put it up there on the website? Well, Dave wouldn't be too happy about that, but I mean... We saw yesterday with the story about the Gaza hospital where the, uh, all the media were jumping on it saying that, oh, this was an Israeli, an Israeli Defense Force missile that struck the hospital. But it, took, it was a few hours later when uh, it came out that, no, it was a Hamas missile that didn't have enough range that ended up striking the hospital. Um, what was interesting to see was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh uh, justified their comments saying that like put out tweets saying oh this is like a war crime and all that but uh one of the information came up they didn't to back it up and say you know i was wrong sorry about that you know this is like hamas who did it so it's been a, the last few weeks have been interesting when it comes to the story yeah well and from from media you know i guess zeal and, and going out there trying to be first and sometimes misreporting things or not getting all the facts out when they should have hung on the other worry we have is media bias which is there. There's opinion guys like me. I mean, my calls would be pretty boring if I don't put my opinion into them. But news copy, a lot of people get mixed up with that online. Fair enough, you know. But sure. you realize there's a big difference between a reporter and a columnist. And, and uh, you really don't want to see that opinion flowing through from a reporter. You don't want to see a columnist trying to write news copy. I mean, if there was a news story written by Corey Murray, people say, well, that guy's got a view on everything. His news, he can't believe his stuff. Like, there's, there's differences. CBC. Now, you know, I mean, I say ostensibly Canada's biggest news organization, thanks to the, the billion and some a year they get. But that's one thing that gets me is so that order has come down and they won't explain themselves on it, but they refuse to call Hamas terrorists. They're not allowed to call it. I mean, CBC reporters and staff are not allowed to use the word terrorist for Hamas. And, and this isn't an opinion. This is a group that's been registered as a terrorist group at, in, within Canada for years. What do we make of that? What rationale would, would you think the CBC would have in, in telling them not to refer to it in that case? I thought it was a, a little bit confusing because you have uh, the Prime Minister in question period explicitly referring to Hamas as a terrorist organization. As you said, they are legally designated a terrorist organization in this country and in a lot of other countries, in the U.S. and even all through Europe. Um, but yeah, you've uh, definitely got this. It, it almost seems to be kind of an abundance of caution um, you know, I was saying uh, back, you know, because these wars seem to pop up fairly regularly and they seem to run a fairly kind of common script. You know, when we were back at Post Media at the Calgary Herald, we had uh, a company-wide memo came up from Izzy Asper himself that said that we were absolutely not to refer to um, Palestinians. Mind you, he, he had a, a broader, slightly broader brush because mm. they were in the West Bank as well. Palestinians are the Palestinian Authority as freedom fighters because uh, Reuters had been putting that in, in their copy, right? So, you know, this isn't a new thing and it, it comes up you know, fairly regularly, fairly periodically and um, too regularly, in fact. I, I 
you know, you can, uh, everybody has sides, but I mean, you know, war is just, uh, is a tragedy. It's a breakdown in uh, communication, the ultimate breakdown in communication. And uh, at the end of the day, I think that you have to take steps to stop it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there are, it's, it's a confusing, nuanced mess over there too. Like for, in fairness, you don't want to call every Palestinian a terrorist. Hamas are the terrorists. Yes. And Hamas came from Gaza and, 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 and as with Hezbollah up in Lebanon and, and the West Bank. But it doesn't mean all of the Palestinians necessarily are members of such and thus are terrorists. So you can overapply the term terrorist. But in some areas, they, they, they pretty well earned the, the title. And oh, we, should, we should be able to apply it to them. I would think so in this case, yes. for sure. That, uh, uh, you know. when, you have, when you have people, you know, bombing music festivals, killing people, beheading, beheading and maiming children, what else can you call them? They're terrorists. Well, that's it. And again, you know, not picking on you and the youth, it's nice having somebody younger in here because you got a new perspective, uh, uh, you know, We've sat through the past infantadas and, and seen this. This is just a, a record that just seems to be on skip. You know, this is the first Middle Eastern blowout that you're seeing, Jonathan. Uh, some of was us, one in 2021. There was one two years ago. Not quite like this, though. I, yeah. You know, to the scale of it. I mean, we're getting to the Gulf Wars or the... It, 2006, was it, when uh, was the, the Lebanon and, and Israel really went yeah. at it uh, yeah. heavily with Hezbollah. But... Uh, it's new eyes on a, as people keep saying some of them too, it's just going to go on forever. I mean, people get cynical about it and then it's when you can't see a solution, maybe younger eyes of your own, <laughs> you can and see a way out because, because nobody else has been able to manage this since, uh, you know, 67. Um, well, and I think also what's changed too is what you said about the immediacy of it. You've got all these uh, citizen journalists running around with their iPhones, assuming that they can get them charged without any electricity and, you know, <laughs> running around and uploading uh, cell cam videos. So, yeah, you'd think that, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, it's very unfiltered. It's happening almost in real time. But then on the other hand, it would be pretty tough to uh, try to stage something or try to, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, like something that- It would get exposed as being you, fake. you get a lot more corroboration, kind of indirect corroboration, maybe not officially, but uh, definitely indirectly for sure. Well, we're, we're gonna see the conspiracy theorists coming out no matter what comes up. And people are gonna say that video was a deep fake. That was, uh, <laughs> you know, that didn't really happen. That, and you know what, maybe it could have been. I mean, it's, we, we, we had that seminar recently on AI and things. I mean, the stuff that can be created now. Oh, man, of course. I'm leaving it on you, Jonathan. You young, <laughs> you young guys, you got to be able to cut through the BS. We, we didn't have this sort of thing to deal with. I mean, I haven't heard Alex Jones espouse any crazy conspiracy theories we'll yet, so, <laughs> so we'll see. Sell some vitamins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he'll be on it, I'm sure. Uh, so, I mean, since we've got our, our energy and business uh, expert in here, Sean, so with the world energy markets, I mean, we got another Middle East war going on. It's going to go for a while. We're already seeing a little bit of uh, pressure on the markets. But uh, what do you anticipate? What are we looking at here? Well, you know, uh, OPEC is a lot less unified than, say, it was uh, in 1973 or in 1967 when they had, uh, you know, the big uh, previous oil shocks. Uh, Saudi Arabia is extremely conscious of it. Um, from my reading of it, so the geopolitical factors that are at play are probably uh, more of a reason for this kind of outbreak 
than anything. You know, uh, Israel was supposed to announce a deal with the Saudis, which was going to include uh, an oil component along with uh, an arms pact uh, with the United States. And I'm sure that there's parties in, in both Hamas and probably within Israel it's, itself that were against that specifically. But you've also seen uh, kind of a split between OPEC members that have uh, condemned, you know, the attacks and other ones like uh, Qatar, 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 Qatar. I'm not exactly Qatar, sure how to say it. They don't stick to you and it just a mess. Major natural gas suppliers. So uh, instead of an oil embargo this time, they threatened to cut off uh, LNG to Europe because uh, they are staunchly in favor of uh, the Palestinians. Uh, the Saudis have kind of tried to stay out of it. Iran, world's fourth largest oil producer, they're calling for an oil embargo. Um, and they're also inextricably wrapped up in this because nobody knows their exact role. And you have to think that uh, Biden's parked uh, two aircraft carriers out in the Mediterranean and the third one in the Persian Gulf, basically just to see what they are going to do. I believe the UK moved one out that way too. So, you know, you got a lot of firepower uh, sitting in there and everybody's just kind of got trigger figures and not really sure what's going to happen. The stuff that's happening on the ground is, you know, it's actually restricted to a fairly smaller area. Well, I, I like to think most people, that's what their intent is to keep it contained then. They don't want to, you know, the, those ships are out there as a warning, hopefully more than a preparation to start getting active, I would hope. But that's kind of a new wrinkle that we haven't seen in these past conflicts. You, you wouldn't see major powers all of a sudden start uh, mobilizing, you know, some pretty serious, uh, you know, firepower. And, and, and this fast. It, this fast. Yeah, I mean, if it, if it Breaks out out there. I mean, people forget how much <laughs> and the complexity, that, how much oil Iran really supplies. Like, well, and it and all comes through the Straits of Hormuz too. So you know, there's an argument to be made that maybe the the reason that they're there is to try to keep those shipping lanes open and maybe try to calm the markets so that you don't have a, a big price spike. You know, that said, on the hospital bombings, uh, oil was up again, almost two dollars uh, before it's pulling back. But you know, we're getting closer and closer. To that hundred dollar mark, and uh, I think that's going to be kind of the tipping point. Uh, you know, kind of a psychological. psychological. Now we're three figure per barrel uh, price of uh, like maybe now yeah. this is getting serious. Yeah. yeah, and I mean I know it sounds crass, but there's so much human loss, you know, going on and everything. To so look at the, how it impacts the economic markets, but it's a part of it, and it's a determining factor in a lot of the actions of countries, whether we like it or not. Absolutely. I mean, the reason I ran still exists, I think, is also the, the fact that they have so much control of resources over there. If it was another rogue Islamic state uh, performing, uh, they, they probably would have been invaded uh, like Afghanistan long ago. Oh, absolutely. Well, we'll just keep watching. I mean, as of this recording, we're looking at uh, Israel's potentially getting ready, it looks like, to go in on the ground and, and start uh, trying to root out Hamas members, uh, you know, as I said online, it's talking about sorting out fly poop from the pepper. You got a couple million people there and and maybe 10, 20,000 Hamas members and how you, it's going to be bloody and it's going to be ugly. Well, and they're underground. I mean, we knew that from the last one. They kept on popping up out of the tunnels and stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, really, they're, they're going to have to clear all of, uh, you know, Gaza City first and then they're going to have to go underground and basically root them out one by one. And it's going to be a messy operation. I'm sure that there's going to be very high casualties on both sides. Yeah, and it's going to take a while. Well, we'll keep watching and reporting on it and sharing our views how we can. Let's move a little closer to home, I guess. Uh, the United Conservative Party, they're going to have their first AGM since uh, Premier Smith got elected. So this will be kind of one that's establishing the flavor of the party under her later leadership, though it's supposed to be member-driven, not leader-driven. I understand the difference, but, you know, those overlap a lot. Um, 
and there's going to be a lot of policy motions. So, Jonathan, you're, you're going to be covering this and watching yes. this, and you've been looking through the, the list of things that, uh, that they're looking to examine uh, yes. in a couple of weeks. What do you got? Well, I'd say with these policy motions, many of them are more so culture warrior type policies, whereas when you saw with the conservative convention uh, last month, it was mainly, well, there was a good portion that were like, you know, economic policies related to that type of stuff. This one is really culture warrior type issues. Um, the three big ones that I think will be people should watch is there's one about the just transition and using the Alberta Sovereignty Act to respond to it. Um, the second one that I think is going to be contentious is the pronoun policy. So it would be similar to New Brunswick and Saskatchewan and what they've been doing where they require parental consent for students under 16 years old to change pronouns. And the third one is about 15-minute cities and restricting land use developments to try to mitigate them. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I'll start just kind of, you know, it's been a political weenie for a long time. I was in VP policy for the Wild Rose. I stuff in the newsroom. I, I got to deal with some, some really colorful and interesting uh, <laughs> policy proposals, as I was mentioning. One was put in, yeah, we we're going to illegalize the Illuminati because they're controlling everybody's minds uh, here in Alberta. I didn't let that one get to the floor. You know, but there's yeah. the hard thing with a grassroots organization. You shouldn't have a, uh, an executive member stopping any policies getting through, but you've got to try and limit the insanity at the same time. But it, I mean, yes. people should also understand uh, that just because a policy has hit the floor at an AGM, or even if it's accepted by the members of AGM, it doesn't mean it's going to be actually brought into force by the elected members later, though it's an indicator. I mean, it's fun media fodder. Like, you know, I, I know you yes. probably played with this. I, when the NDP comes out and they get their socialist wing, puts in some crackpot stuff in their conventions, you know what? <laughs> I twist the knife on it and, and I bug them. But I know realistically okay. the, the leadership of the NDP, Rachel Notley, isn't going to bring those extreme policies forward. Uh, okay. We're going to see some, some some serious, I think, uh, games played I, I, with, with some of these, you know, like the 15-minute cities things. I, I imagine okay. we're going to be seeing people painting the UCP as conspiracy theorists. Yeah, I, you know, I would agree. It's, But at the same time, I think... Um, I'm not a party leader, but it would seem to be important to give voice to, you know, the grassroots and the membership. Um, you know, somebody who struggled with this a lot while he was premier was actually Ralph Klein, because Ralph Klein, you know, he's fairly socially liberal, um, you know, so he had the fiscal uh, hawks all on board. But every time they went to a policy convention, there was always some kind of a resolution about uh you know, gay marriage or something that that would come up, uh, you know, that he obviously was not interested in, but, you know, at the same time had to kind of pay lip service, you know, to bring them out. And I'm, and I think Smith, since Premier Smith, since she's been elected, you know, most of the focus has been on these economic issues, you know, electricity, energy, um, constitutional turf wars with Ottawa. And, you know, what's been sitting in the back is, like you said, the, you know, the grassroots of the party that, uh, well, put her in there because they're the ones that, you know, got rid of former Premier Kenny. And you have experience with Wild Rose and, you know, Danielle was the leader of them, you know, for quite a while. And, and she had her own issues with the, you know, with the membership and trying to balance, you know, like you said. You, you, some can't, of the, you can't ignore them. I mean, you know, and I don't want to dismiss that. I was just saying they don't have to follow what comes out of these conventions, but they, they should feel guided somewhat. I mean, this is where you get a measure of your membership, the ones who are paying your donations, knocking on your doors for you. And uh, voting for presumably <laughs> keeping you in. Uh, so it's it's a balancing act. Uh, 
Yeah. When you went through them, Jonathan, did you see, because there's always the, 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 the turd in the punch bowl that hits every time. Was the abortion thrown in there anywhere? I didn't see anything about that, but I saw one about medical assistance in dying and wanting to add in safeguards to that. Um, but shifting back to the crackpot ones, like there mm. were a few where I was just like, why is this being debated at a convention? Like there was one about uh, electronic voting machines something like that. We haven't really seen an issue with that in Canada, but it's mainly uh, an American one. And then there was another one about wanting to add like a second part to the charter where they want to include things like gun rights and rights against excess taxation, rights to healthcare and all that. It was, I've kind of found that odd. I'm like, like usually when it comes to like these constitutional type issues, you usually don't talk about them at a convention. Um, but shifting to uh, people painting the UCP as conspiracy theorists, I saw Gil McGowan having one of his typical meltdowns, saying that the crazy train has arrived and that there's... <laughs> He's one to talk. Yeah. Well, and they are going to do fodder with it. The other part that comes at these AGMs is when the policy debates come and people come up and get that microphone yep. as proponents or all opponents and speak. And again, most people are rational fine but yeah. once in a while you'll get somebody pop out and you know there there's again the age of the iphone no statement is going to go unrecorded oh of course and, and even with uh like at the conservative convention there were a few motions that when they after they came out you know liberal mps and ndp mps were, and even like you know social justice type people were coming out of a woodwork and jumping at the conservatives being like how dare they pass this policy so i'm sure we're definitely going to see some fallout from whether or not certain policies are adopted in the following days after that. Yeah, well, it'll be something to, to, to be watching. You know, again, as I said, this is going to be, this is more of a, you know, it's not a midterm AGM or something like that. Like this is the one that, yeah, that is her first is the leader really. And, and uh, you know, it's, I mean, speaking from a business perspective, I, I think businesses, companies, they want to see some feelings of stability, right? They, they, some, some, that's what businesses always like to see is, is just, well, and she's been out front center, like, you know, they were talking uh, the first 100 days, uh, you know, she, she was elected on the policy of, uh, you know, the corporate taxes. And a lot of these uh, social kind of issues have seemed to be taking a back seat. I, I, at the press conference last week, somebody asked her about the pronouns and um, Premier Smith gave an answer about, uh, you know, being a grassroots party and being in tune with the views of the grassroots, but uh, she's also been pretty plain in the past on her own personal uh, views with, you know, she's a libertarian, she's um, pro-rights or whatever, you know, she's pro-gay marriage, I mean, that's a little... Yeah, she always has if, been. She always has been, like, yeah. th that's never been a secret, so, and uh, I think she's probably personally a little bit reluctant to bring up some of these issues at uh, AGM. We haven't talked about it yet, but I, I think that's the reason why um, they're pushing the CPP. It's, you know, referendum and, the, you know, reopening the idea of a provincial police force because uh, these were kind of like the signature issues that were brought up in the leadership campaign. Well, that's a good point. I mean, if you can constantly just keep on top of the agenda and keep the conversation points, as much as people are trying to pull it over to the other issues, it's a little harder when, hey, we're, we're busy right now with the uh, pension plan or... or, or you know, we're doing what we said we would do. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I, so I mean, they also still do have to uh, take the social conservatives seriously. I mean, uh, we, we saw with a uh, take back Alberta. I mean, they, they've been very active. They've, they've, you know, David Parker's outspoken, unapologetically socially conservative. 
uh, makes no bones about it. We will rip leaders out if you don't, you know, toe the line. And he knows how to use the tools for it. You know, you get into the constituency associations, get in on the provincial executive. That's another battle that's coming up. Is is the provincial executive? Have you have you looked at many of the people running for that, Jonathan? I know that uh, Tape Back Alberta controls half of the board right now, and they're looking to take over the the other half. Whether or not that's the case, I'm not too sure. Um, I haven't really seen too much action online about that, but I think the main issue with this AGM is some of the policy motions that are put forward. And I would just like to add, I, w- I would agree with that because, um, you know, it's easy to have a unified party when everything is going well, you know, like, like they have been, you know, uh, Premier Smith's been on a bit of a honeymoon, honeymoon period with voters and, you know, so he's getting a lot of support from people who, you know, are pleasantly surprised, even people that were her detractors originally are, are saying that she's doing a good job. So it's easy to have a unified party when uh, everybody's all on the same page, but you don't have to look very far back, uh, you know, uh, to uh, Jason Kenney and what happens when, you know, that facade starts to crack and it comes out from underneath your feet. And a lot of people did say before the election that uh, keeping that party together was going to be probably the toughest challenge that Premier Smith has in her mandate in her term. Well, she certainly learned hard lessons about that, uh, you know, in her wild rose time and then with caucus uh, splitting on her and, and a number of things. I mean, I was on the provincial executive with the wild rose while she was the leader of the party. And for people who don't you know, directly get involved in politics, may not understand that separation. The provincial executive runs the mechanics of the party. Right. They run the policy formulation. They run the constituency associations. They're there to prepare for the election. But they're a separate authority from caucus and leader. And sometimes people don't understand. And the leader's got to juggle between the two. Well, and it's vital too, yeah. right? Like, the, you know, the, the ground uh, the ground game mm. is, is what wins elections as much as policy. And and I, I will see. I mean, Danielle Smith, I think you know, she's really reinvented herself from somebody who hit the political bottom so hard. Uh, I imagine she's learned a lot of things and thought on a lot of things. I, I know why we had some horrific battles when I was in the executive <laughs> with the leader of the party. I won't, won't detail those maybe until I write a book when her political career is done. Uh, when the names the, of the innocents have yeah, been changed. Nothing terribly scandalous, but there was a lot of heads butting. I mean, they, they're, they're in the same team, but at the same time, they, they each tries, you know, the leader sometimes tries to usurp a little onto the provincial executive or the executive tries to push in and, and direct caucus and, and neither should be doing so, but it happens. And that's what can really lead to some rifts and stress and, and uh, problems. Well, you know, I would say, I don't mean to preempt or interrupt, but um, I've thought Premier Smith has done a really good job of bringing in her political leadership rivals uh, into the cabinet. You know, I'm, I was kind of out of it for a little while, so I wasn't to attune, but, you know, having to deal with some of these people on a daily basis, you know, uh, Rebecca Schultz, Brian Jean, um, uh, who's the Rajat Sony? Like yeah. she's she's taken all those people, and I mean they had some pretty harsh things to say during the during the leadership campaign, and and she's kind of seemed to manage to pull them together as a team. So, and that's maybe. the caucus level, and 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 cabinet, which is important, very important, and that's where I think she had her biggest problems prior, even when in opposition. Yeah. But now the the next potential nest of hornets is. The party structure, which uh, Jonathan, you'll be going on the floor and, and yeah. sniffing around to see what members' views are. Oh, of course, yeah, and you know I'll definitely be looking to speak to the big players before, during, and after. Yeah, and I mean this is where it's at these AGMs too, where the advocacy groups start coming up. Whether you 
you know, like them or don't like them. The Some of the best areas, if you want to get candid views, go to the hospitality suites when some of these uh, advocates get a few beers into them. <laughs> and uh, I promise you, you'll, you'll find some, some yeah. interesting stuff. I'm sure. Uh, but uh, that, that that's the risks of these AGMs as well. I mean, you're going to have, whether it's, it's the parents' union or pro-life associations or pro-business ones that are getting a little too bold and thinking how much uh, sway they have with the, the party as well, uh, I don't know. As you can see, I like the intrigue of this uh, sort of crap, even though this is the stuff that puts people off politics. This yeah. is how the sausage gets made, guys. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was at the uh, Friends of Science. Uh, and, another and advocate? Yesterday. Yeah, yeah and Michelle and, and the others. Everybody knew you. They were like, hey, do you know Corey? I was like, yeah, I know Corey. <laughs> Careful you answer that. It's not always a positive. But it, <laughs> but it seemed like, uh, you know, the, that's a prime demographic, uh, UCP demographic. Mm. You know, those people, they're... And there were some uh, politicians shaking hands and kind of working the floor and, yeah. and, and doing that kind of thing. Well, and Friends of Science, they're pretty, for the most part, rational. I mean, a hardcore climate activist would think but otherwise. But they're also very, but, quite conservative, I yeah, would say. Yes, they're yeah. very much, you know, in, in line with But things. yes, a little less on the social activist side. Yeah. It's, a little it's more at, professional. It's at this AGM where you're going to see more of that. And it'll be a little more subtle than, say, an old school delegated leadership Race. I used to love those when I was young watching everybody wearing the same t-shirts for their team. Yeah. See how the t-shirts <laughs> actually move across the floor as one leadership <laughs> candidate endorses the other. I mean, you had your and then they start wearing each other's hats. Yeah. yeah. You know, again, for dorks like me, it was very entertaining. But, but for others now, it's a little more nuanced. But that is what's going to be happening down there. And uh, the, the, stuff, the, the stuff you don't see at the front podium is, is where you'll really see the meat and potatoes of what's going on in, in a party at one of these things. So... Uh, We'll see if the uh, standard's been on the ball. I've got my press pass for it. And I'll go there too. <laughs> I don't think you need one, Corey. <laughs> I think you just show up and say, uh, yeah, not necessarily that welcome. I assure you, I appreciate uh, Interesting times. But yeah, it'll, it'll be a lot to watch. And just remind everybody yes, we'll be covering it in depth. And uh, well, I'm sure we'll have some pipeline and my episodes talking about what we thought out of it. Yep. So, as kind of you brought in, um, Jonathan, have you had a look at that? Yeah, Justin Trudeau, he's, he's come up with his open letter to Premier Smith on uh, the Canada Pension Plan and Alberta Pension Plan. Yes, so with that one, what Trudeau is saying is uh, if the Alberta government moves forward, people shouldn't be worried because he's going to defend CPP. Uh, but what's interesting is that this open letter highlights that a point that Daniel Smith was making, which is that Alberta is paying in more than it's receiving. And when the parental pension was announced, when I went to the press conference, she talked about how this is the biggest issue with that and how Alberta is sending more money than we're getting back because we have a higher employment rate and younger population. And yeah. Jonathan's kind of more at that contribution age <laughs> where we're kind of more at that withdrawal <laughs> age. We're getting closer. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I talked about that. Oh, actually, it was a speaking event I was at the other night. But I, I said, you know, because I was... I brushed it off back when I led the Alberta Independence Party back in the 90s when I was in my 20s. And I had people coming up saying, an independent Alberta, but I'm worried about my pension. Is my pension? I said, I have to worry about it. It's not a big concern to worry about it. Well, actually, the, the grayer your hair gets, the closer you get to the end, it, it becomes a much bigger concern. I mean, if it's not there, you, you're, you could be in serious trouble if you don't have outside investments. Uh, people uh, who have contributed for decades and still, you know, I might have another 10 or 15 years of work and I hope left in me, but... Uh, you know, you, you, it starts to become pretty important to make sure that that balance is, is safe. 
Well, when I was Jonathan's age, uh, the concern was that there was going to be no. Yeah, they CBB. said there wouldn't be one at that time. Yeah. You know, so like uh, that's a complete transformation now that the program is supposedly sustainable for seventy-five years. Credit to Kretchen, he did fix it up back because it was a Ponzi scheme prior to what him and Martin did. Sure, and uh, going back to the friends of science and conservative demographic, well, that also seems to be kind of a CPP kind of uh, demographic, I would say, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I didn't go around and ask people what I, what their thoughts were on the pension, but, you know, I think um, there's a kind of a potential split even uh, within the UCP among, uh, you know, UCP supporters that tend to be maybe a little more aged than uh, younger <laughs> folks <laughs> like Jonathan here and uh, still want to support uh, conservative government. Well, I think yeah, a lot of older people do want to support perhaps an Alberta pension plan, but they just really want to be darn sure that they're going to get my nest egg is going to be safe. I'm going to get it later. Well, what uh, Premier Smith did mention when the pension was announced that it would be similar or lower contribution rates and potentially higher amounts that people would receive in the end. So I think that's what's assuring people because she had promised legislation that it was guaranteed. Um, I do think that uh, the provincial pension plan might be the first bill coming forward. I know that Premier Smith did promise uh, that the tax cuts thing would be. But I think right now, with just the whole climate, I think that might change and she'd probably bring forward the pension bill, possibly as a first one. I know the legislature doesn't resume for another two weeks. So, I mean, anything can happen, really. Yeah, I think it'd be a little, personally, I think it'd be a bit of a gamble to throw a bill out on it this early when she's just saying she's starting the consultation. Though, I mean, I think yeah. I think some critics have been fair enough when it, they're going through the motions of the consultation, but it sounds to me like they're pretty much got their heart set on going ahead with this. It's just a matter of determining what it's going to look like. All it needs is a referendum, really, and whether or not Albertans vote for it, I'm not too sure at this point. I mean, polling numbers do look a little mixed, um, and there's some uncertainty and with what's going to happen. by demographic. Yeah. yeah. Like when she's talking about lower contributions, I mean, that's a, that's a, yeah. that's a bone for you. Yeah, that's you, for me. You get to keep more of your check while you're going yeah. through. And then higher uh, payouts... Well, you have to be contributing for a, certain, for a few decades before you're even going to come close to those higher payouts because yeah. the people that are going to be collecting out of CPP are going to be getting pretty close to what you know what they would have been getting now, right? Well, a whole lot of this rides on the interpretation of what Alberta's share of the existing fund is. And there's a huge bone of contention going on there. I mean, as Jonathan said, uh, Trudeau's letter was an admission saying, yeah, we're dependent on Alberta. <laughs> That's the only way we're, we're keeping this thing together. And, and if they pull out in any form, we're, we're going to be in some serious trouble. Well, I think it uh, kind of becomes a proxy for um, equalization. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, we had that uh, referendum as well under uh, Jason Kenney. And, uh, you know, they haven't done anything with that. But yeah. uh, it seems to me that the the pension debate and the contributions of the Alberta pension are almost uh, parallel, if not intersecting at some point with the equalization debate and how much money is actually flowing back to the federal government and form in those kind of payments as yeah. well, right? Well, beyond the overpayment, it, it's it's the amount of principal we would be entitled to. I mean, their calculation of it, I, I know I got barked at heavily by a few folks as soon as I even said it on Twitter, but I do feel that they're, okay, they're taking it on, it's, it, it's in the legislation, and if you interpret it that way, uh, Alberta would be entitled to well over half of what's in the pot. I just don't see Canada bending on that. Uh, but I mean, before it goes to a referendum, I think they're going to have to have some sort of solid number, whether it's 20% of what's in there or 30%, like yep. we're going to say, well, we're pull out, we're going to have this much to start with. Uh, well, absolutely. And uh, there's an interesting column by um, 
Jack Mintz. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Jack. He's in, Jack. I, I, yeah. I haven't seen that particular column necessarily. It was in the National Post this morning where he was talking about um, $384 million. Basically just being a, a good starting point to, to actually have this discussion about all these other ancillary issues, including uh, equalization and taxation and balanced payments and energy security, uh, you know what I mean? Like they all kind of feed it because if you want pension security, then you're going to have to have some kind of an economic basis really to back it up, right? Yeah, so from a, a, again, you all throw it kind of in your business perspective though. I mean, that, that, that money isn't just sitting in a money bin in cash. It's all tied up in investments of all sorts and all kinds. If Alberta were to pull out and we're going to separate that, you know, boy, How they've got a heck of a task. Fund, yeah. yeah. You know, well, are we going to completely liquidate that fund there or do we take 30% of that fund and move it? It's going to be quite a, a well, I mean, no matter how you do it, it's going to be a lot of work, but that could also disrupt business markets too. And so you get shifting on, on uh, investment priorities. And which and, assets would you want? You know, yeah. like wouldn't Alberta government <laughs> maybe be more inclined towards some of the, you know, energy assets, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, at a time when we're supposedly downplaying, you know, the fossil fuel industry. So maybe CPP unloads all its holdings in Suncor and Petro-Canada, you know, back to the Alberta government and say, here, you take it. See, I would like the CPP to keep all the energy assets because that gives the rest of Canada a heck of an interest for us to keep working out here and doing well with our energy companies. Because if you sink those energy companies, you're sinking your own pension plan. Yeah, well, that's just my way of thinking. But it, it would just be, you know, there's a... I mean, I'm very thrilled and interested in this whole thing, but it's going to be a complicated, difficult thing to get to the point, I think, where Albertans will accept it in a referendum. I agree. And I'm initially, you know, my, you know, my thoughts are I'm, I'm fairly supportive. You know, I've, I'm familiar with CASE in uh, Quebec. Um, hmm. They haven't done as well as CPP, but, you know, uh, there's definitely a lot of uh, autonomy on how they invest, where they invest, and how they do it. Um, but then at the same time, like you said, this is going to be a very complicated uh, divorce and division of assets. It's like uh, you get the kid, I get the car. Yeah, <laughs> I don't like that kid. She gets the house. <laughs> yeah, oh, that one. That one. Yeah, the kid is licking the windows. So you can have that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I mean, I, it depends on again with support and demographics. I mean. Uh, we don't want to absorb more risk and kind of get when we're getting to the point of looking at drying out. But I mean, if I was in my twenties or whatever, I'd say, well, what the heck, let's roll the dice a little on something, you know, can afford to take a little more risk there, Jonathan, in your investment portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, you know, I, I, as a, perhaps a, a campaign, I, you know, tactic, uh, when it comes to the point of a referendum, they might want to really reach out to the younger voters, uh, and get them out. Yep. Uh, cause they'd be less, uh, I think, I don't know, but uh, they might be more inclined to support uh, the concept of a, a newer pension. Thank you. But anyway, another area of it, is, as you said, is opening up a lot of discussions. It was interesting. Somebody was talking about, you know, EI. We're kind of getting hooped in the same basis as we do a CPP. It's not a building fund. It's a, it's a, a program. But uh, with EI, Alberta pays far more in than it pulls out. And uh, I've heard talk occasionally of Alberta starting its own employment insurance program too, which would really really throw a wrench into the business of uh, Eastern Canada if they do yeah. that. Especially with uh, Nova Scotia, I believe that it's, I believe the amount of hours you have to have work to claim EI in Alberta is I think three times that of Nova Scotia or something like that. I remember hearing that somewhere. Um, yeah, I mean, whether or not that ends up becoming a conversation, I know that Daniel Smith hasn't talked about an Alberta employment insurance plan, but I mean, politics changes every week, so who knows? 
Well, when I was uh, young and during the bust in, uh, in the 80s, the crash of 86, 87, when I just happened to graduate from high school, you know, uh, the Alberta alphabet at the time was UIC, ALCB, RCMP. <laughs> you know? um, like, it wasn't called employment insurance. No, it was unemployment insurance at <laughs> yeah, that time. Un unemployment enjoyment, you know. Well, and it used to frustrate. It was terribly bad back in the 90s when I was starting in the oil field. It would drive me nuts because I've worked a lot at surveying ahead of seismic projects. It's very seasonal. And you have a whole pile of work you really got to wrap up, usually before breakup hits in March, April. But something would happen, usually at the end of February, start of March. All our maritimers that came out for the season suddenly got enough hours in to collect DI for the rest of the year. And they're gone. They won't work a day longer than they had to to collect. And I'm not saying all of them. A lot of them stayed to. I want to be fair, and they were fantastic workers, fantastic people, and, and worked out the rest of the season. But we would have a huge labor crisis. We'd lose at least half of them because the system was just being played. You know, in Alberta, if you wanted to collect, you had to work well beyond that to, to be eligible. But over there, you didn't have to work long at all. And then suddenly, yep, you're good for the year. <laughs> yeah. it, it's become almost an equalization program in itself as well. Well, that's it. I, I we should have been years. focusing on moving the people to the industries rather than moving the money to the people over there, but that's... I mean, like, many newfies did stay in oh, Fort yeah. McMurray, and, you know, they've, they've set up their own little community there. Even Arthur's still out here. <laughs> Somewhere. Arthur, are you out there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure Arthur's enjoying his job with the Alberta government right now. Oh, like I said, I want to couch it. There were a lot of fantastic maritimers came out. They were part of building Alberta, and they're still here. Or even ones that came and went, but worked their butts off and worked full amounts but that program was abused and it was used as a wealth redistribution scheme which it really shouldn't have been and it still is to a degree today saying one more thing for maybe danielle to think about hey if you can't get them on the pension well i'm kind of curious if, if alberta did put it in its own ei program maybe the you know the restrictions would be twice as high as they are now i've, I've never actually collected i mean i've been paying in for however many years i, I have no idea how much was it's got to be fairly substantial, I would think. Yeah, well, we've been, well, there's no, they must have some degree of a fund, but still, it's 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 a little different, that one. It's an insurance program. Rather it goes than, on your yeah. earnings and whatever earnings you are, not necessarily on how much you've earned yeah. over, over time, as opposed to a pension, right? Yeah, so it's not a built-up cumulative thing. If you're off work for two weeks, you get two weeks coverage. If you're off for six months, so be it, but it wasn't based on that. Uh, yeah. I don't know, lots to chew on. Maybe uh, it'll come up next year's AGM. I think we've run out of time, though. So we've solved a few world's problems, but not all of them. <laughs> no. we'll, we'll, we'll save a few for next time. Yes. <laughs> Thank you both for coming in today, guys, and filling those roles that are typically taken by the other stodgy, other Western Standard staff. So Jonathan, Sean, thank you very much. And thank it's all you guys for tuning in this week. Uh, be sure to watch for the Corey Morgan Show and this, and take advantage of that, uh, getting past the paywall while you can. And if you haven't subscribed yet, take a subscription out as soon as that wall's back up. It's important to us. Right, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. The current Lethbridge feed grain prices are as follows. Cash barley's at 342, feed wheat's at 352, and corn's trading at 339 per metric ton. In the milling wheat markets, December Minneapolis futures increased five and a quarter cents at 733, with local hard red spring bids for October movement at 966 per bushel. In the oil seeds, Nearby canola futures lost $6.30 at $7.12.90 per ton, with delivered values for October movement at $16.05 per bushel. In the pulse markets, 
Nearby red lentils are holding at 36.5 cents a pound, and yellow peas are trading at 10.75 per bushel. In the cattle markets, December live cattle are up 15 cents at 187.02 per 100 weight. For more information on grain marketing, call me at 403-394-1711. I'm Sean Smith at Marketplace Commodities, accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada. And more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. You become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny. You can become a Western Standard member for just $10 a month or $99 a year for unlimited access.